something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going Everybody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speak in their minds Are getting so much resistance from behind the Time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going the show you might want to pull up a chair i had wandered off to get busy with all of the ways that we were manipulated well not really manipulated i mean if you think about it we all agreed to what was going on right we may not be happy with what we agreed to but here's where we are um so anyway so i thought well let me take one more look at this thing about the slaves and see if there's anything else here. I mean, it's kind of alarming to think of yourself officially as a slave, right? All this time you're tooling along, saying that Pledge of Allegiance <laughs> should have been our first clues. How'd that go? I Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Oh, speaking of flags, on the website I will have a um, picture of the gold fringe on the U.S. flag. That flag you will see in places like um, if they're having Senate hearings, you'll see the American flag has that gold fringe. That means the admiralty laws are in play. Also in courtrooms in the United States, you'll see that same gold trim flag. I even looked at some of the fake trials like Ted Bundy to see what kind of flag they had there. And I'm pretty sure it was all black and white, but I'm pretty sure that it was a um, gold thing. So even if the case is fake or not, that gold trim on the thing signals that it's the admiralty laws are in effect. 
Yeah, and it's all over, you know, even at um, even at airports, you know, the TSA, you know, they can call the DEA on you, the drug enforcement agencies, if you have cash or anything they think might need to be seized. Remember, it's all one big group, right? So they all report into the same kind of people, so, and they all clearly work together. But even more alarming than um, being a slave my whole life and having no clue of that, you know, other than, remember as a kid, you'd say, hey, mom, what are you, some kind of slave trader? <laughs> we used to say some things which we culturally inappropriate now, like, um, but that was then, right? Joking about being slaves. I guess the joke's on us. So anyway, so yeah, so there's a lot more because in 1917, they had this act called the Trading with the Enemy Act. And it's the United States federal law enacted on October the 6th, 1917, that gives the President of the United States the power to oversee or restrict any and all trade between the United States and its enemies in times of war. Well, that original one, I'll be getting to these in a great bit of more detail in a minute here. So, the Trading with the Enemy Act of 1917 kind of left us citizens out of the uh, plot line here, okay? But then, it was amended in 1933. Turns out there was a lot to look at here with old FDR. They really, they really cooked everybody's goose with that one because people still talk about what a great president FDR was or she was. Um, the TWEA, the Trading with the Enemy Act of 1917, was amended in 1933 by the Emergency Banking Act to extend the president's authority also in peacetime. It was amended again in 1977 by the International Emergency Economic Powers Act to restrict the application of TWEA only in times of war, while the IEPA was intended to be used in peace. Well, you'll figure out when I do the introduction and explain what some of these laws are, all this stuff I just read off will make a whole lot more sense. But here's the bottom line. I focused in on a couple of key elements here. I'm doing research about psychopaths. So this is one thing a psychopath is doing, right? Will I ever become an expert in their all their sly maneuvers? Uh, likely not. But this is something key in the actions of them that I thought we should pay attention to. These little acts and stuff, they seem to pass by us. Because, you know, these acts get passed in different ways. Like, for example... I've asked you to please consider going and watching that show about how food will control us. Well, here's the deal. I just happened to have caught one day, I don't know, when Trump was still in office, and they were talking or something, and something about some executive order came up, and it caught my ear. So that was all that was really broadcast about that. And so from there, I went looking and discovered how they had signed in the Insurrection Act of 1807, you know, right as he was leaving office, they signed in that amendment for that, okay, which is a pretty big deal. And then also one day I just happened to pick up on this NATO thing being on the shores here, which really never got much press. And even all this NATO stuff now, I'm only scanning it, but I don't hear people talking about, hey, do you realize NATO is also in the United States? <laughs> so, so they do tend to, in their way of warning and signaling us, what they do is they pass these laws and stuff. This is not rocket science. We just have to be on our toes, right? <laughs> so of all the tricks they pulled during this era, I thought, well, 1933, that was a key time because that was around the Depression and all of that. And what happened then? In 1933, it was amended 
by the Emergency Banking Act, that peacetime thing I just read about, okay? So it's pretty crazy how it all happened. And um, how did these things get amended and stuff? Well, somehow Iran and <laughs> some hostage situation at the um, embassy there took place during the Carter years and stuff. And that triggered, see, these, these acts always get triggered by something, right? That Iran deal, which I'll get into more detail with, triggered this act to be amended again from, it was first in 1933 under FDR to get the banks under control, and then it was amended again in 1977. So that became very, very interesting also, and it got triggered by Iran. But the whole Emergency Banking Act actually got triggered by Detroit. And these were all things that I had no clue had really happened. Or if I had a clue, I don't remember, but I don't think that I knew. So I thought, well, this would be interesting to talk about today. So yeah, so I'll be covering the 1917 and the 1933 acts, which really, um, well, put us in a whole new position, let's put it that way. We went from being slaves to actually declared enemies of the state. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, and then also the stuff about U.S. citizens and the banking crisis under FDR. So, yeah, it's interesting we're talking about all these asset seizures because the United States is now talking about grabbing up Russian oligarchs' yachts <laughs> as part of asset seizure. Well, it's just interesting when you know where I'm not, I'm not laughing if anybody is harmed by this, but I kind of don't think these people are being harmed, but maybe their employees are. So that part I wouldn't find funny. But anyway, so, uh, so what happens is, is that they're going around seizing up yachts right now, which is what exactly we've been talking about with asset seizure, right? So that's, they're grabbing them up, up under the high seas. So I started thinking about, well, what are oligarchs? I mean, they're rich billionaires from Russia, right? So what do we call rich jerks from the United States, like Bezos and all of them? Why do we call the Russians oligarchs? So I'll just spin off a little side deal here with you. So anyways, oligarchy is a form of power structure in which power rests with a small number of people. These people may or may not be distinguished by one of several characteristics, such as nobility, fame, wealth, education, or corporate, religious, political, or military control. May not be distinguished by one or several. Anyways, authorities in Germany have seized this, uh, German, this Russian guy's boat, okay? as part of the sanctions against the Kremlin and its supporters. So I guess that had to do with this guy's wealth, okay? And also probably polit political reasons. They, they could choose out of this list of things, right? Um, so he, they, he has a 500-foot yacht, mega yacht, and um, the ship was taken by authorities in the North German port of Hamburg on Wednesday. The mega yacht is estimated to be worth six hundred million dollars. Well, that brought me up. It brought a lot of thoughts to my brain. Um, why are they called oligarchs? You know, they're just rich people, right? Just like all the rich people we have here, like Bezos and you know people who have gained like you know triple their wealth just in the last couple of years. I mean, what do we call them? So interestingly enough, somebody had actually done a study. 
In 2014, two prominent U.S. political scientists, I don't know what their names are, who argued that the influence of economic elites and big business far outstrips that of ordinary citizens. Yes, it does. They do control a lot of power. In their view, America is less a bastion of representative democracy than a nation trampled by the desires of the hyper-wealthy. They use all these big words. Um... Is, oh, it's less a bastion of representative democracy. Yes, it is less a thing of that. It is mainly hyper-wealthy people in this country, right? Who pay very little taxes and uh, all that kind of stuff. We know who they are. Others have suggested that their vision is too bleak. But the outsized economic, social, and political clout of the super-wealthy in America is beyond debate and right for scrutiny. Yeah, they keep talking about... You know, they say, oh, we got to raise taxes on them. Well, you know, why don't they talk about getting rid of loopholes, right? <laughs> People, they have tricked us in so many just very simple, simple ways, okay? And then there was this thing called corporations are people in this country. It was a debate of billionaires that went to the Supreme Court in 2010 under the Citizens United decision. It decided that election spending regulations restrict the right of corporations to free speech, meaning that corporations, as of 2010, could spend whatever they wanted to sway political power in this country. But 77% of the country believes there should be limits on how much individuals and organizations can spend on political campaigns. So they pushed that through. And um, the power of money, right, by lobbyists, which they don't talk about those people who do this stuff. But anyway, interestingly enough, of the 100 richest billionaires, 98% are white, 86% are men. Well, I will argue are women. <laughs> women truly do run the world, okay? And the average age is 70 years old. So, yeah, pretty interesting profile on those people, right? So, yeah, they did pass that thing. Now, some people say, well, it didn't really mean that corporations are people. But, yes, when you look at these laws that I'll be talking about today, as far as them designating us enemies of the state and all this citizen business, all of this stuff starts to make more sense. So, anyway, before I get started here, if you get a chance, um, over at the website, there's this attorney on YouTube who has been covering this asset seizure thing, okay? And he has an interesting case, and it's about a case where the cops seized money, okay? And it's recent, and it's a, it, each clip is only 10 or 15 minutes, but there's four of them. The first one opens up with what happened, okay? And then it moves into, you will just be, just go listen, you will be just amazed at the tricks that are going back and forth for this person to try to get their money back. I mean, it is just incredible, the story of how the cops and the feds hid this guy's money from him. It was a lot of money. It was like in the $70,000 range. So yeah, it's an interesting story, and I'll have the links up over there. Also, you might want to look, um, I'll have a clip up of Joe Biden just did his, go Brandon, just did his State of the Union address. And speaking of Nancy Pelosi, um, watch that clip. It's only a few minutes long. 
he goes to announce something. They're such puppets, right? And you just have to watch it. She gets up and starts rubbing her uh, knuckles together. <laughs> Can't really describe it. Okay, and one last thing before I get to the more serious topic. Um, the um, I put some th links about JFK there. There's a good video that shows how JFK uh, is really Jimmy Carter. And because I did the JFK Jimmy Carter show recently, um, the clip is really good. And it shows, you know, how they look look alike, act alike, and the whole, you know, the whole fakeness of that whole uh, supposed murder of JFK. So that will be over there at the website. And then a couple of other things, which I had just kind of stored up my brain. Um, there's a... Um, video of um, JFK and he's speaking at the Southeast Peanut Association and, in 1957 and remember um, Jimmy Carter was a peanut farmer and yeah I looked up the link because I remember in my head that JFK had spoken at some peanut association and I think he also um, gave peanut farmers some extra tax credits and stuff you know, just in time for Jimmy Carter to replace him later, uh, which was pretty funny to watch him talking about this stuff. And also, um, JFK had a bunker that was on Peanut Island. <laughs> I have the link for that story there. So anyway, so yeah, I think that's about it. And um, welcome to the show, and I'll talk with you soon. is give you an overview of the three different laws that I think are very significant that I'd like to address with you today. The first one is called the Trading with the Enemy Act of 1917, also known as TWEA. So you might want to make a note of these or it might get a little bit confusing. So the first one is Trading with the Enemy Act, TWEA, and that came into effect in 1917. It's a United States federal law enacted on October the 6th, 1917, that gives the President of the United States the power to oversee or restrict any and all trade between the United States and its enemies in times of war. Gives the president a lot of power, right? TWEA was amended in 1933 by the Emergency Banking Act to extend the president's authority also in peacetime. It was amended again in 1977 by the International Emergency Economic Powers Act to restrict the application of TWEA only in times of war, while the IEEPA was intended to be used in times of peace. And I'll get to that IEEPA in just a second here. Next, we have the National Emergencies Act of 1976, referred to as the NEA. The National Emergencies Act 
enacted September the 14th, 1976, codified these other federal laws and was passed to end all previous national emergencies and to formalize the emergency powers of the president. So that was to get rid of any previous acts that they had put into place, okay? The act empowers the president to activate special powers during a crisis, but imposes certain procedural formalities when invoking such powers. The perceived need for the law arose from the scope and number of laws granting special powers to the executive in times of national emergencies. Congress can terminate an emergency declaration with a joint resolution enacted into law. Powers available under this act are limited to the 136 emergency powers Congress has defined by law. This legislation was signed by President Gerald Ford on September the 14th, 1976. As of March 2020, 60 national emergencies have been declared. More than 30 of them still stay in effect to today. Now, there might be a couple more that snuck in here from 20 to 22, but this is what we're going with today. The next act, the next act, excuse me, International Emergency Economic Powers Acts. The International Emergency Economic Powers Acts was enacted on October the 28th, 1977. It was the United States federal law authorizing the president to regulate international commerce after declaring a national emergency in response to any unusual or extraordinary threat to the United States, which has its source in whole or substantial part of the United States. So perceived, okay, perceived international threats can be declared as emergencies. The act was signed by President Jimmy Carter on December the 28th, 1977. That was the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, okay? It provides the president with broad authority to regulate a variety of economic transactions following a declaration of national emergency. And that's also called the IEEPA, International Economic Powers, okay? The IEPA, like the Trading with the Enemies Act, from which it was branched, sits at the center of the modern USA sanctions regime. Changes in the use of the IEPA powers since the Act's enactment in 1977 has caused some to question whether the statute's oversight provisions are robust enough to give the sweet to give the sweeping economic powers it confers upon the president. Well, they question these things, but then, of course, they still do them, right? Over the course of the 20th century, Congress delegated increasingly amounts of emergency powers to the president by statute. TWEA, which was the Trading with the Enemies Act, was one such statute. Congress passed TWEA in 1917 to regulate international transactions with enemy powers 
following the United States entry into the First World War. Congress expanded the TWEA during the 1930s to allow the president to declare a national emergency in times of peace and assume sweeping powers over both domestic and international transactions. Between 1945 and early 1970s, TWEA became the central means to impose sanctions as part of the U.S. Cold War strategy. The Enemies Act essentially declared all of us as enemies to the system, okay? Presidents used TWEA to block international financial transactions, seize U.S.-based assets held by foreign nationals, restrict exports, modify regulations to deter the hoarding of gold, limit foreign direct investment in U.S. Company, com companies, but we know that none of this is true, right? and impose tariffs on all imports into the United States. Following committee investigations that discovered the United... See, they go back and they review these things, and they say, oh, well, gee, this has been going on for a long time. Well, they had this committee investigation that discovered that the United States has been in a state of emergency for more than 40 years. Chaos and emergency, right? Congress passed the National Emergencies Act, NEA, in 1976 and the IEPA in 1977. The national one, remember, the NEA rescinded the powers from before and then the IEPA made it more international in scope. But they went on to say the pair of statues placed new limits on presidential emergency powers. Both included sweeping reporting requirements to increase transparency and track costs, and the NEA required the president to annually assess and extend, if appropriate, an emergency. However, some experts have argued that the renewal process has become pro forma. Yes, it just automatically gets renewed. The NEA also afforded Congress the means to terminate a national emergency by adopting a concurrent resolution in each chamber. A decision by the Supreme Court in a landmark case, however, found the use of concurrent resolutions to terminate an executive action as unconstitutional. Congress amended the statute to require a joint resolution, significantly increasing the difficulty of terminating an agency. So they made it harder for them to say there was no emergency. And I'm going to take a pause here. Oh, let me finish this up because then I want to get back to some other statutes here. Okay. Like the TWEA and the IEEPA, they have become important means to impose economic-based sanctions since its enactment. Like the TWEA, presidents have frequently used IEPA to restrict a variety of international transactions. And like TWEA, the subjects of the restrictions, the frequency of use, and the duration of emergencies have expanded over time. Initially, presidents targeted foreign states or their governments. Over the years, however, presidential administrations have increasingly used IEPA 
to target non-state individuals and groups, such as terrorists, persons who engage in malicious cyber-enabled activities, and certain persons associated with the International Criminal Court. As of July 1, 2020, presidents have declared 59 national emergencies invoking the IEPA, that's the international one, 33 of which are still ongoing. Typically, national emergencies invoking IEPA last nearly a decade, although some have lasted significantly longer. The first state of emergency declared under NEA and IEPA, which was declared in response to the taking of the U.S. Embassy staff as hostages by Iran in 1979. This may soon enter its fifth decade for this thing. This got triggered by these U.S. hostages. Remember that hostages that supposedly got um, <laughs> held up in Iran back then. There's always a significant thing that happens that gets them into gear, right? Well, they're already into gear to begin with. They just stage the thing that triggers getting them into gear. Because there's allegations, which I tend to believe, that the acts that were written for post-9-11 were already written before 9-11 hit. So these things all get taken care of, and then the crisis hits, and then they have the solution, right? Okay, indeed, the instead, the Congress has directed the President on numerous occasions to use IEPA authorities to impose sanctions. Yeah, this country imposes sanctions all over the place. Right now, they're talking about sanctions against Russia. That would come through this measure here. The IEPA allows them to cut off Russia from what they think they should be cut off from. So, um, yeah... In the Nita Swiss action, so yeah, I think that um, these laws are pretty well in place to service what they want. Here's a quote I'll close off this section with, and then I'll come back with more, uh, more details. Until the lion tells his side of the story, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. interesting piece that I'm pulling up right now from the Congressional Research Service in the year 2020 and it talks about the United States Constitution is silent on the question of emergency power. Well, I think we know why. Went on to say, as such, over the past two centuries, Congress and the President have answered that question in varied and often ad hoc ways. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the answer was often for the president to act without congressional approval in times of crisis. So 18th and 19th, they wanted the president to act without congressional approval, okay? Congress claimed primary primacy over emergency action and would decide 
subsequently to either ratify the president's action through legislation or indemnify the president for any civil liability. That's an interesting part because they left a lot of things open, like the War Act is left open. A lot of things are left open to their own discretion. But if you heard them talk, you would think these things were all wrapped up, right? But by the 20th century, a new pattern had begun to emerge. Instead of retroactively adjusting an executive's extraordinary actions in times of emergency, Congress enacted statutes authorizing the president to declare a state of emergency and make use of extraordinary delegated powers. The powers shifted in the 20th century. The expanding delegation of emergency powers to executives and the increase in governing via emergency powers by executives was a common trajectory among 20th century liberal, liberal democracies. As innovation quickened the pace of social change and global crises, some legislatures felt compelled to delegate to their executives who traditional politic theories assumed could operate with greater dispatch than the more deliberate and future-oriented legislation. So the idea was to grant these powers in advance. And it went on to say, whether such actions subvert the rule of law or are a standard feature of healthy modern constitutional orders has been a subject of extensive debate. Well, I think we have to understand that we don't really have any kind of a constitutional thing here. It went on to say, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, IEEPA, is one such example of a 20th century delegation of emergency authority. That was the one that came out of the deal with Iran. Went on to say, one of 117 emergency statutes under the umbrella, no, this is just one, okay, so there's 117 emergency statutes under this umbrella of the NEA, the National Emergencies Act. The IEPA grants the president extensive power to regulate a variety of economic transactions during a state of national emergency. Congress enacted IEEPA in 1977 to rein in the expansive emergency economic powers that it had delegated to the president under the Trading with the Enemy Act. Nevertheless, some scholars argue that judicial and legislative actions subsequent to IEPA's enactment have made it, like TWA, a source of expansive and unchecked executive authority in the economic realm. No kidding. Next point. Others, however, argue that IEPA is a useful tool for presidents to quickly implement the will of Congress, either as directed by law or as encouraged by congressional activity. Until recently, there has been little congressional discussion or modifying either IEPA or its umbrella statute, the NEA. Recent presidential actions, however, have drawn attention to presidential emergency powers under NEA, of which IEPA is the most frequently used. So the most frequent stature under NEA is the IEEPA, okay? Should Congress consider changing IEPA, there are two issues that Congress may wish to address. 
the first pertains to how Congress has delegated its authority under IEPA and its umbrella statute, the NEA. The second pertains to choices made in the Export Control Reform Act of 2018. So yeah, these laws, I will, um, on the website, I will list the names of these laws so you will have free access to go and look them up and take a little closer look. So yeah, basically they seem to have had some sort of um, checks in place until they got to the 20th century and this deal with Iran, and then they had to kick into gear with this international one. So essentially it gives the president full power to pretty much do whatever they should choose to do because we have been under an emergency since the beginning of time. So that's how that's worked out. Let's talk about this Trading with the Enemies Act. It took a pretty sharp turn in 1933. So, let me pull up the file here and um, tell you what it says. Okay, Trading with the Enemies Act. I talked a little bit about that in the overview in the very beginning. This act specifically excluded citizens of the United States because in 1917 when it was written the citizens of the United States were not considered enemies so people were excluded from the war powers over enemies in this act and let me explain how it happened section B of this thing states that the president may investigate, regulate, or prohibit under such rules and regulations as he may prescribe by means of licenses or otherwise any transactions in foreign exchange, export, or earmarkings of gold or silver coin or bullion or currency, transfers of credit in any form other than credits related solely to transactions to be executed wholly within the United States. The wording starts to change here. Again, we see that citizens and the transactions of citizens made wholly within the United States were specifically excluded from the war powers of this act. We, the people, were not enemies of our country. Therefore, the government did not have total authority over us as we were given over our enemies. So the enemies were not were designated to not be U.S. citizens. They went on to say, It is important to draw attention again to the fact that citizens of the United States in October 1917 were not called enemies. Consequently, the government, under the war powers of this act, did not have authority over us. We were still protected by the Constitution. Granted, over enemies of this nation, the government was empowered to do anything it deemed necessary, but not over the U.S. citizens. The distinction made between enemies of the United States and citizens of the United States will become crucial later on. 
and that later on happened in 1933. So it was an amendment that read as follows. During time of war or during any other period of national emergency declared by the president, the president may, through any agency that he may designate or otherwise investigate, regulate, or prohibit, under such rules and regulations as may be prescribed by means of licenses or otherwise, well, this is complicated, any transactions in foreign exchange, transfers of credit between or payments by banking institutions as defined by the president and export, hoarding, melting, or earmarking of gold or silver coin or bullion or currency by any person within the United States or any place is subject to the jurisdiction thereof. They went on to say, well, what just happened? As far as commercial, monetary, or business transactions were concerned, the people of the United States were no longer differentiated from any other enemy of the United States. As of March the 9th, 1933, in this section 2, and they were the, the wording was replaced with by any person within the United States or any place subject to the jurisdiction thereof. So they just cleaned up that wording, right, to include the rest of us. All monetary transactions, whether domestic or international in scope, were now placed at the whim of the President of the United States through the authority given to him by the Trading with the Enemy Act. To summarize this crucial point, on October the 6th of 1917, at the beginning of America's involvement in World War II, Congress passed the Trading with the Enemies Act, empowering the government to take control over any and all commercial, monetary, or business transactions conducted by enemies or aliens of enemies within our continental borders. The, that act defined the term enemy and excluded from that definition citizens of the United States. In Section 5 of this act, we see that the president was given unlimited authority to control the commercial transactions of defined enemies. But we see that credits relating solely to transactions executive oh, done wholly with the United States were excluded from that. As transactions wholly domestic in nature were excluded from authority, the government has no extraordinary control over the daily business conducted by the citizens. But because of that, we were not considered the enemies until all this changed. Citizens of the United States were not enemies of their country in 1917, and the transactions conducted by citizens within this country were not considered to be enemy transactions. But in looking again at Section 2 of the Act of March the 9th, 1933, we can see that the phrase excluding wholly domestic transactions has been removed from the amended version and replaced with by any person within the United States or any place subject to the jurisdiction thereof. So the people of the United States were now subject to the powers of the Trading of the Enemy Act of 1917. 
So that was how it happened. Um, so basically, the act of 1917, trading with the enemies, the amendment of March of 1933 made all people enemies of the country. And that's how that worked out. things happened around this time with all of these acts that also had to do with banking and some interesting things that I had no clue about how Michigan entered the picture and all this banking stuff the depression all that so um, basically these acts the um, TWEA and the IEPA Act are in place and they were frequently used to restrict a variety of international transactions, okay? So the subject of the people who they were targeting this stuff initially was only under emergencies and has directly expanded over time. So they started out to target non-state individuals and groups, such as terrorists, persons who engage in malicious cyber-enabled activities, and certain persons associated with the International Criminal Court. Now, I don't know exactly where this statute plays in, but I would suspect this would be an act that probably they have the same kind of act in Canada because they've been seizing bank accounts for those funding for the truckers and stuff. In Canada, the government or somebody has seized donations that were raised for the trucker thing going on up there. Um, and I think they did it through some sort of terrorist thing. So, yeah, I would look for this to be the exact same plan here and probably just in about every country buried in the fine print somewhere that these acts will be used to seize things in banks. So, as of July 2020, presidents have declared 59 national emergencies and 33 are still ongoing. I covered that earlier. Um, so, yeah, it's... It's really, um, it, it got triggered by that, the U.S. Embassy staff in Iran, and that all got triggered by the whole deal to enact these things, always the event and the thing. So let's talk a little bit about the background of some of this banking stuff and just put it into context here. The Federal Reserve System, I'm talking about in the United States, every country has Federal Reserve Systems, okay? The Federal Reserve System is the central banking system of the United States of America. It was created on December 23, 1913, with the enactment of the Federal Reserve Act. After a series of financial panics led to the desire for central control of the monetary system in order to alleviate financial crisis, this was as of 1913, okay? Over the years, events such as the Great Depression in the 1930s and the Great Recession during the 2000s, I guess they called the, that one a recession instead of a depression, have led to the expansion of the roles and responsibility of the Federal Reserve System. Yes, they do have a thing about leaving the same people that create all the crisis in charge of things, don't they now? Um, always look for the patterns, right? 
So in the 1920s, banking failures had dotted the rural landscape of the country as the new wave of industry and commerce constricted the traditional lifeblood of agriculture. So 1920s, already a lot of problems with the banks in this country, country okay? 1929, they saw the great stock crash. 1930, a new tariffs and tightening from the Federal Reserve in 1930. So in 1925, there were 617 banks that failed in the United States. The Great Depression was a severe worldwide economic depression that took place mostly during the 1930s, beginning in the United States. Just kind of like how Germany began the thing for World War II, right? Out of Weimar, where they blew out before. So, patterns and patterns. The timing of the Great Depression varied around the world. In most countries, it started in 1929 and lasted until the late 1930s. It was the longest, deepest, and most widespread depression of the 20th century. The Great Depression is commonly used as an example of how intensely the global economy can decline. So, who comes in during this time? Well, we have FDR rolls into office. He was the President of the United States, the 32nd President of the United States, from 1933 until his death, or whatever, in 1945. I wonder if he was really in that wheelchair or not, or if he was just lazy and wanted to be rolled around. But they do have a lot of, uh, I'm sorry, that sounded really cruel, but <laughs> believe me, I don't, I'm not fond of these people, but I want, don't want to act hateful like they do, but uh, <laughs> it did occur to me. So, you know, it is a big act, so it had to cross my mind, <laughs> was the wheelchair part of the act? <laughs> um, I mean, who knows? They, they're giving themselves all kind of neurological diseases. So yeah, it, it, there's a there's a probability that he of all people could have also been paralyzed from the drugs, and because of his role in the pecking order, still been put on the world stage. So those are all possibilities. Or the wheelchair time would disguise who he became later in some other part of his acting career, supposedly running the government here. So there's lots of options you have to look at when you look at these things. So. Um, but his inaugural address and stuff was interesting, so I want to include it here because he was at, or she, was at the helm when this whole thing took off and lit on fire, okay? On March the 4th, 1933, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was inaugurated as President of the United States. Referring to his inaugural address, which was given at the time when the country was in the throes of the Great Depression, um... So there was a bank holiday following his inauguration on May the 4th because the banks were in order. And I have a little story here that I'll weave together. This will make sense with. Um, so when he got elected, he set out to rebuild confidence in the nation's banking system because remember, this was right after the uh, Great Depression. So, uh, so to get things sorted out on March the 6th, and he only was in office a couple of days, he declared a four-day national banking holiday that kept all banks shut until Congress could act. So immediately takes over and causes bank holiday. So 
his quote from, excuse me, from his Treasury Secretary was, the emergency banking legislature passed by the Congress today is the most constructive step toward the solution of the financial and banking difficulties which have confronted the country. The extraordinary rapidity with which this legislation was enacted by the Congress heartens and encourages the country. Yes, they whipped into gear and passed this very uh, interesting banking regulation. And this was signed by the Secretary of the Treasury, William Wooden, on March the 9th, 1933, just five days after they took office. This stuff is already rolling along. The confidence builder, this is my comment here, okay, is FDR, because he was a very sly move to bring in to try to get all this uh, unrest, which was clearly, I mean, going through the Great Depression all that, people were a little bit shaky over banks and stuff because of all the ones that had failed and all that. So a quote that I pulled up from him said, I can assure you that it is safer to keep your money in a reopened bank than under the mattress. Franklin, President Franklin Roosevelt, in his first fireside chat, March the 12th, 1933, so just a week after office, he started these things called the fireside chats, where he would cozy up next to the fire. Um, so, immediately after his inauguration, President Franklin Roosevelt set out to rebuild confidence in the nation's banking system. At the time, the Great Depression was crippling the U.S. economy. Many people were withdrawing their money from banks and keeping it at home. In response, the new president called a special session of Congress the day after the inauguration and declared a four-day banking holiday that shut down the banking system, including the Federal Reserve. This action was followed a few days later by the passage of the American, oh, excuse me, the Emergency Banking Act, okay, which was intended to restore Americans' confidence in banks when they reopened. Boy, they hauled into action, didn't they? The legislation which provided for the reopening of the banks as soon as examiners found them to be financially secure which was prepared by Treasury staff during Herbert Hoover's administration and was introduced on March the 9th, 1933. So Hoover got this ball rolling. Hoover was right before FDR as far as the line of the, you know, so-called fake presidents or whoever these people are. <laughs> I mean, we really don't know who they are, do you? If you know who any of these people really are, um, give me a clue. So anyway, so um, that bill passed that evening and this is march 9th this is pretty incredible he was only in office what since the fourth it passed later that evening amid a chaotic scene on the floor of congress in fact many congress in congress did not even have an opportunity to read the legislature before a vote was called for <laughs> now where does that sound familiar they always produce these mammoth um bills and then nobody reads them and then they all sign them and then later they say well we didn't get a chance to read it um, they really have some pretty specific patterns here. So it says, um, his quote was, I am prepared under my constitutional duty to recommend the measures that a stricken nation in the midst of a stricken world may require. 
These measures or such other measures as a Congress may build out of its experience and wisdom. Just listen to us, people. Just let's put that money back in the bank. <laughs> I shall seek within my constitutional authority to bring to speedy adoption. Yeah, he really sped into gear, didn't he? <laughs> I'm not going to even get into all the things FDR did, but you might want to take a look. I mean, talk about putting the um, um, slave... Um, bans on all of us when you go and read about what social security really means or any state benefits in any country you're in i mean <laughs> that was our um that was how we got into this deal so anyway so um i shall ask congress for one remaining instrument to meet the crisis abroad executive power to wage a war against the emergency as great as that power would be given to me if we were, in fact, involved by a foreign foe. So to me, that sounds like he's declaring war against the country, right? Okay, he said, I shall ask the Congress for one remaining instrument to meet the crisis broad. Executive power to wage a war against the emergency. As great as the power that would be given to me if we were, in fact, invaded by a foreign foe. So, yeah, as much power and, you know, <laughs> steam engines or whatever they say they're riding around on back then. Um, yeah, it sounds pretty serious to me. Um, so, another thing from his inaugural, President Roosevelt was saying that he was going to ask Congress for that extraordinary authority available to him under the War Powers Act, okay? So, he made this thing... And it is a proclamation 2038, okay, on March the 5th. And that is, you know, he's got into office on the 4th. <laughs> so um, he called for the special session of Congress to meet on March the 9th at noon. And, and at that Congress, he presented a bill, an act, to provide for relief in the existing national emergency in banking and for other purposes, gaining that control. So um, the act of March 9th, 1933 is still in full force and effect today. This is why I think that a little bit more searching might take place whatever country you're in because I suspect that whatever they put into play around 1933 when all this stuff was going on with the banks in this country which would affect the whole world i would suspect that this clause around the world has never been changed because according to this paperwork and what i found so far now obviously if i find something new i'll <laughs> revisit it but what i think happened was that the act in march 9th of 1933 is still in full force and effect today, right now. That is what they say is that we are still under the rule of necessity. We are still in a declared state of national emergency, a state of, emer of emergency which has existed uninterrupted since 1933 or for over 60 years. So I don't know. I would have to, if I find out that it's not in effect, I'll let you know. But it sounds to me like it is, in fact, 
still infect. Because remember, they put these things into play, and I've shown you many examples already just today about how you have to follow the, the logistics, logistics of how they set up these little rules and stuff, because that's part of their warning system, right? That's part of their signaling to tell us exactly what they're going to do. But they, they're not going to stand up at the podium when everybody's paying attention and make these announcements. They're going to make them in sly and sneaky little ways, right? By passing this or passing that, and then this gets amended to that. And before you know it, it's everybody's a, everybody's a member and a prisoner of this country, right? So um, they did say that under FDR, remember, gold also supposedly got confiscated. So I don't know that I believe that whole gold thing. Uh, this whole gold thing could also be a setup for now to get people to be investing in gold because they know that it has no value. So that's my suspicion, okay? And I think I've done enough work talking about them rigging things like gold and diamonds too. If if you're not suspicious, just be a little suspicious and go look a little bit closer. But I think gold is part of the strategy. Look at what they're trying to sell you on YouTube, okay? And there's where you probably find where the uh, real crooked deals are coming from. Gold, silver, Bitcoin, uh, crypto. We all know crypto, cryptocurrency means fake, right? Crypto means fake. So, yeah, not, not much of this stuff is hiding. It's right in our faces, as a matter of fact, most of it. So, um, yeah, because the U.S. was still on the gold standard back then. But, the, but interestingly enough, the U.K. had been forced off 18 months earlier. So I don't know if um, the U.K. had had the control then, but um, they say the rest of the world would follow by the eve of World War II, never to return. So, yeah, 1933 FDR, pretty significant time when, you know, all this gold stuff took place. And um, so, who knows? Um by 1930, the number of banks was 1,350. With each failure came an obliteration of many people's life savings. So, yeah, in 1930, 1931, 1931 2,293 people um, lost their, I don't know, 2,293 2, banks, excuse me, failed. So a lot of people lost a lot of money up until 1931, right? So income, so this makes even more sense with FDR coming in because he comes in like the big rescuer, right? Poor guy in the wheelchair sitting next to the fireplace having chats with people. Um, but what really started this all, and I'll go through this part here because this part is what really made me want to tell this whole story because I had no clue this happened. So... What happened was that things were not going well in Detroit in the banking business. And I don't know every single detail about this. This is just basically what they're saying, okay? Because in February of 1933, the banking system was frozen in the entire state of Michigan, precipitating a national crisis. So I believe the first canary in the coal mine, so to speak, alarm took place in February of 1933, which would make it right after FDR gets put into office, right? So this piece said that De Detroit had a high unemployment and, and a po indigent population, and there was poor people. So they said the situation with Detroit proper at this time could hardly be described as tranquil. 
There were about 400,000 unemployed in the city, many of them laid off from the auto industry, and they began to form unemployment councils for support. So Detroit was the first, you know, all these deals, like even like the Spanish flu, for example, I have that show, it's over on YouTube, that started off in some weird little town in Kansas. All these places have these kind of strange little beginnings to them. So, um, so what happened was, was that these councils started to supposedly help the poor against evictions and stuff. So basic bottom line is Detroit was in horrible decline because the auto manufacturing business, okay? 80% of the city's auto manufacturing capacity lay idle. And um, there was no welfare, no unemployment insurance, no social security, and no deposit insurance to cover the savings that were in the bank. So this is very interesting how this was set up to me because right before all this banking stuff happens, there just happened to have been a big disaster in the auto industry in Detroit, which left a whole bunch of people in Detroit, you know, and the, the bank there was the first one that went down, right? So it's interesting how they set up these little plot lines. The early 1930s in Detroit, they saw clothing drives, thrift gardens, reductions in rent, and the donation of crops from charitable organizations. Prosperous citizens contributed thousands and even hundreds of thousands of dollars to the relief efforts. So they were in really bad, bad shape, okay? So what happened was was that this had to do with a Ford, and there's this thing about Ford being supposedly Jewish, and I don't know that's that interesting, but... Um, so what happened was this got out to the press. Okay. And, um, what happened was, um, they tried to continue business, but you know, it got out and at least the chances of another bank run were removed for the next couple of weeks. Okay. Because they called their first Michigan bank holiday. Okay. And it kind of was a holiday and how they displayed it. But on the national level, other papers employed their readers not to take the case of Michigan too seriously. So word got out around the country, and I believe this to be true, okay? Word got out around the rest of the country about what was going on in Detroit. And the newspapers in the other areas, like this New York Herald Times, they said in a quote in their paper, because they were trying to quell people from being upset, obviously, they this newspaper said it is well to bear in mind that the banking situation in Detroit is by no means typical of that of the United States as a whole and continued with a litany of how Detroit's troubles were especially severe so yeah they told a little bit of the truth but they said oh don't worry about it it's it's, it's just over there in Detroit so the words proved to be far more prophetic far from prophetic by the time that Roosevelt was inaugurated 37 states had suspended their banking operations. In each case, there, were, there, were, there was a growing sense of dread that the national system was dying. So, and the economic calamity of 1929 to 1933 was but a precursor, okay? In many towns, the economic functions on script or outright barter. So people by that point in 1933 were quite, quite poor. Okay. So, um, two days later, 
Roosevelt declared a federal banking holiday. What a way to pass it off as fun, fun times, right? A holiday, not, <clears throat> not shutting them down. So within a week, he pushed that act. His first fireside chat was dedicated to explaining these measures, and most Americans approved heartily. Heartily. Everybody is happy. Everybody's happy with FDR. So um, it was passed to stabilize the banking system. Um, in this long interval, the banking system in Detroit was reorganized. So, yeah, um, I would encourage you to look around Detroit. There's some um, videos on YouTube about Detroit right now. And um, it's a place that they clearly have burned through and left abandoned and totally destroyed. If I find a um, good clip to show you, I will post it on the website because it shows the patterns of how they go in and build up a place, destroy it, and then just move right along. And that path, if, if anybody is looking, that path is through this entire, absolute entire country. So anyhow, I don't know where this is going next with what segment, but I guess we'll soon find out. Okay, let me cover the Iraq, excuse me, Iraq, Iran hostage situation, which is an example of how this IEEPA thing got triggered. It was over the hostage situation in Iran. On November the 4th, 1979, 52 United States diplomats and citizens were held hostage after a group of militarized Iranian college students belonging to the Muslim student followers of the Amman's line who supported the Iranian revolution, they took over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and seized hostages, okay? A diplomatic standoff ensued. The hostages were held for 444 days, 444 being released on January the 20th, 1981. So this deal in Iran started supposedly on November the 4th, 1979. It ended January the 20th, 1981. Western media described the crisis as an entanglement of vengeance and mutual incomprehension. U.S. President Jimmy Carter called the hostage-taking an act of blackmail. And the hostages were victims of terrorism and anarchy. In Iran, it was widely seen as an act against the U.S. and its influence in Iran, including its perceived attempts to undermine the Iranian Revolution and its long-standing support of the Shah of Iran. The Shah of Iran's name was Mohammad Reis Pahlavi. He was overthrown in 1979, or she was overthrown, depending on how you want to look at the situation. <laughs> yes, up until, I'm not going to go into the whole history of this thing. It's very easy to look for yourself. I'll just cover a few highlights for those of you who weren't alive and kicking or concerned about Iran in the 70s. 
this Shaw guy was overthrown, but it was kind of a friendly deal because he was admitted to the U.S. for cancer treatments after he was overthrown. And, of course, Iran demanded his return, but then he found a soft landing in Egypt. I think he died in Egypt of cancer at a pretty young age, 60 years old, in 1980. So, yeah, it was about a bunch of um, people being supposedly locked up in a U.S. embassy there. Jimmy Carter, who later became JF... Excuse me, Jimmy Carter, who was JFK, <laughs> and... In the show notes, um, um, Archie made a copy of a clip of a of, of video somebody produced. And I did this show, I don't know, in the last month or two about JFK and Jimmy Carter. And you'll find the show interesting. Anyway, so he made a copy of that video. So it'll be over on the show notes. So it's interesting how those two intersected and all the weird deals that ensued between Jimmy Carter and um, Kennedy. Jimmy Carter ended up looking like a not very effective U.S. president, whereas JFK is still worshipped to this day. So it's pretty funny how these things get twisted around, right? So anyway, so the Shaw guy had been um, accused of committing crimes against Iranian citizens because he had secret police, and um, they demanded some things from the U.S., and the U.S. rejected them. And so, yeah, it was a big deal between the two of them, and... It went on for, you know, 444 days, of course, right? Very much political theater. Um, but the interesting part about um, political analysts, all their analysts, their scholars, <laughs> all those people, the journalists, they cited the standoff as a major factor in the continuing downfall of Carter's presidency and his landslide loss in the 1980 presidential election. The hostages were formally released into United States custody the day after the signing of the Algiers Accords. And that was just minutes after American President Ronald Reagan was sworn into office. And so, yeah, so there was a lot of controversy over, um, you know, they say that the hostages were released after Carter took, I mean, excuse me, after Reagan took over to, you know, anyway, you know, it's all made up and it's all theater. So let's move along to the more interesting part here. I've been looking into Iran for a very long time and, uh, well, as close as I can from a distance, right? Because what's Iran famous for? Well, transgenderism. Um, before the, Islamic Revolution in 1979, the issue of transgender identity in Iran has never been officially addressed, but beginning in the 1980s, transgender individuals were officially recognized by the government under condition that they would undergo sex reassignment surgery, also known as SRS. If you ever want to do a search, just plug in SRS into the search on YouTube or online and you will find out all you want to know about sexual reassignment surgery, SRS. So anyway, so what happened was with some financial assistance is provided by the government and the change of sex marker on birth certificates is available post-surgery. So the bottom line is this. Um, so it, Technically, and this is from what they're saying today, because I looked it up 
today to figure out what they're saying now because I was confirming if I had new or old information. Transgender individuals who do not undergo surgery have no legal recognition. And those that do are first submitted to a long invasive process. Yes. So what happens is, is that the bottom line is, is that if you are, um, if you say that you're gay in um, Iran, you could be killed for that. Okay. But if you declare that you're transgender, the government will actually pay for your surgery. It sounds kind of westernized to me. I don't know about you. So anyway, so yeah, so even the uh, people from the UN have talked about these surgeries in Iran. And interestingly enough, how does this play out? Well, of course, it's all about money, right? Um, people who get the surgery in Iran are, they say they're discriminated against. I don't know how much of that is true because I have no way to confirm that. But what's interesting is Iran the reason I started looking into them a few years ago is it is also a destination for transgender people seeking surgery from other Muslim countries, okay? Most countries in the region persecute homosexuals and transgender people alike. A major reason Iran's rules on gender identity are so different because they say in Iran you can be transgender and be part, you're, you're accepted, right? Maybe not by the general public, but the government laws, if you're transgender, you're part of the system. They say that gender identity is different because the neighbor that Iran is Shiite, while the most countries in the region are Sunni. How much of that plays into it, I really do not know. But I do know that I've read a lot of reports over the years that being gay will get you murdered and you can decide to become transgender and the government will pay for those surgeries. So what does that tell you about how westernized Iran really is? I mean, really, it wouldn't be hard if the government from here wanted to send people into Iran to get surgeries or surrogacy or whatever in the heck they're cooking up over there, right? No one ever considers unmarked planes. <laughs> Obviously, the U.S. wouldn't want to be have their planes seen flying in and out of Iran, the big, big bad enemy, right? So, yeah, I mean, a lot probably went on around being closed up for all those years. So they're still closed up to this day. So who knows what's going on there? But I can confirm that I believe that all of this transgender stuff is very, very true because all the stories add up. So that's the story about Iran. I'd like to close the show with just a couple words here. I wish I had something funny to close with, but I don't know. I'd rather face reality than be shocked shocked about some trick in the future. So thanks for hanging in there with me. We went for a very long time not even trying to understand how evil really works. So I hope you will consider making your own kind of music. Try it. Replace that fear with information. Try to learn all that you can about these people. This could really be a huge opportunity for us, or a disaster. I mean, however you want to look at it, right? I see it as an opportunity because, you know, who knows? I mean, 
the Bible's been manipulated. Is this end times we're looking at? Well, I mean, something's clearly up. I mean, <laughs> who can deny that, right? But one thing I know about psychopaths, they like to create victims to control us. The name of the game. Try to not let that happen to you. Goodbye for now. Be safe out there. Nobody can tell you There's only one song worth singing They may try and sell you Just to do your thing